Let's go to a very Christocentric passage in Colossians. Colossians is after the Gospels, kind of in the middle of the New Testament. Um, help, help a brother or sister find it if they're having trouble. Um, it's also up here on the screen, I think. Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. Let me read. Colossians 1, this is a, a letter of Paul 2,000 years ago that he wrote to the church in Colossae, okay, in the, on the Mediterranean rim. He says this, Paul says this as he's waxing eloquent about the salvation that Christ alone brings to us. He says, oh, right, David standing. Could you all please, I don't do this part very often, I forget. Could you all please stand out of reverence for the word of God that is such a treasure, okay? Paul, Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, he being Jesus, okay? He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and what? For him. Mm. Notice this verse right in the middle of this passage. And he is before all things and in him all things, what? Hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. That's us. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Lord, how can we possibly, how can we possibly download, understand, appreciate this rich word. Help us to apprehend it, Holy Spirit of the living God, by the blood of Christ shed for us, by the power of his resurrection, help us, help us to get some of what Paul's talking about here, how all things hold together in Christ, and without him, nothing that is would be. Would you get glory this morning, Lord Jesus, as you already have, would you continue your preached word. Amen and amen. Mm. Okay. So we're four deep into a five sermon series on the five solas or the onlys of the Reformation. The scriptures alone are our final infallible authority for faith and life. We live to the glory of of God alone, there's a second sola, and we come to know this God and his glory and are saved from our sins and made perfectly, perfectly righteous by grace alone. That's the merit of Christ applied to you. Through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's where it all rests, boom. And it's on this phrase and in this Christ alone, this solus Christus that we're gonna fixate for the next few minutes, okay? So the Reformation context needs to be brief, too brief, but there are lots of great materials out there um, on, on the context. But in, in short, um, in the 500 years ago in Martin Luther's world, things had gotten to a point in the Western European church, in the Roman church, I'll say, where it was sort of anything but Christ, practically, functionally, uh, that was getting glory. The Pope uh, was Christ on earth, and seen as Christ on earth, and, and um, 
his diktats and his um, papal bulls and, and, the, and the creeds uh, stood right up there along scripture. And really the Pope was your way in a sense to, uh, to be right, made right with God. He was Christ's representative on earth. Um, and indulgences became a thing. And that was a way for you to get clean and to get credit with God and to pull yourself and other people out of bad places, purgatory, hell. Um, and so indulgent, the Pope, Martin Luther came ringing this bell, nailing these theses, ringing this bell, writing, preaching, and Europe sort of awoke a flame um, through this spark. And, and he came saying, look, the Pope is not going to save you. Uh, indulgences won't save you. The church, the church won't save you. Um, going to church won't save you. Baptism won't save you. Being a decent or good person, there's, nothing, there's no such thing outside of Christ, but you hear that a lot won't save you. Your obedience won't save you. Pristine theology, if you're an armchair theologian, you've been studying theology all your life, your pristine theology is not going to save you. Uh, The Bible, the Bible won't save you. It's not gonna be standing there with open arms ready to receive you into the gates, okay? The Bible won't save you. And all these things are good, aren't they, okay? Uh, Faith, even faith won't, your faith won't save you. We We are saved through faith, through faith, but not by faith, okay? Uh, not even not even the gospel, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm trading carefully here, but not even the gospel will save us. We must believe the gospel, the good news of Christ to save us, but we are not saved by the gospel. It doesn't save us. We are saved by one thing and one thing alone, Christ Jesus, the God-man, okay? Christ will save you. Christ can save you. He may be calling you now with open arms, as he was on the cross, those, he's there no longer. He says, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And in his death, he buried sin and hell and death itself. And he rose again to a new type of life and trusting in him, running to him, looking to him alone as savior is what we need. And it's what I'm able and, and glad and blessed to preach this morning. And there is salvation in no one else, Peter says, For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12. Believe on him, I mentioned this earlier, and you will be saved, you and your household, Acts 16.31 to the jailer, okay? We are saved and live and move and have our being in Christ alone. He's in all and, and in him all things hold together, Colossians 1, and he upholds what? All things by the word of his power, all things, Hebrews 1. So in this, just we're gonna glance off of this, uh, this sort of foundational passage in Colossians 1 that I, um, that I read. I mean, don't wanna do, I wanna do a deep dive into the exegesis, but we're just not gonna, we're not gonna do it today. Um, but Colossians 1, 15 through 20, it starts off by saying that there's a, he is the firstborn. Jesus Christ is the image of God, the very image. If we wanna know what God is like, what do we do? We look at Christ. Do you, want, do you have any questions about the character, the goodness, the mercy, the compassion, the humility of God? Look no farther, look at Jesus. He's the perfect image of God. And in fact, Paul goes on to say what? All the fullness of God dwells in him. He is, he is the fullness, he is the very being of God because he is God. Um, but he has a special connection, Paul starts off this passage by saying, Jesus has a special connection to creation. He's, the first, he's even called the firstborn. Does that mean he was created? No, because Paul goes right after that to say he created all things. He created all things. 
visible and invisible, okay? And in him, all things hold together. That's God talk. So he wasn't created, but in saying he's the firstborn, it's like saying he's the, he's, he's the true son of God. He is God, but he's not the father. And he's the mediator, and he always has been to everything God's made. And all, the thing, all things that the father made, he made through the son, such that he's eternally begotten of the father in this special relationship. And he sort of connects, as it were, creation uh, to God, always has. And so he has this special connection to creation. He loves all things that he spoke out, that he breathed out. He is the very breath of God, the very word of God, okay? Um, and Paul goes on to say that he also has a special uh, connection to what? The new creation. Okay, so he's, um, he's the firstborn from the dead. What does Paul say here? He says this. He says, he's the firstborn of creation. And then he goes on to say, hey, he's also the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in him, um, excuse me, he's the firstborn from the dead. I just lost my place here. That in everything he might be preeminent, or the word in the Greek can mean first. So he's first, he's firstborn of creation. He's firstborn of the new creation, having, having been the first to die to the old creation and bury it, okay? Bury the curse that attended the old order. And, and um, that in everything, Paul says, he might be first. So I get this picture of Christ just saying like, look, all things are holding together in him. Old creation, new creation, he's the mediator between creation and between us and the new creation, and the barrier of an old order that's been cursed by our sin, and he's risen to a new type of life, and we who trust in him will follow him, okay, as the firstborn from the dead. And he's back here saying, God's looking, and we're gonna go to this next passage right now, but to get a better picture of what I'm talking about, but he's looking around and saying, look, man has totally corrupted through his disobedience my creation that I gave to him and told him to cultivate. Who will, who will set things right? And the firstborn of creation raises his hand and says, I will go, I will go, that I might be first even in death, that I might rise to a new life and all follow in my victory, in my victory line, in my victory chain, okay? So he's the firstborn of a new creation. He's the beginning of a bumper crop that will never die, okay? That's not affected by the curse, that's not affected by sin, that's not affected by hell. Um, and Paul has this verse in verse 17 where the, it's in the middle of the passage and he says, in Christ, all things hold together. And that verse is sort of the thing that's the linchpin of the passage. So it actually holds the passage together. And he's saying, look, Jesus Christ holds heaven and earth together. He holds God and man together. Um, and how does he do that? Verse 20, through his cross, through his cross. He took the hit for fallen creation and he finished the work, the payment necessary to adjust God to make things right, and he buried it, and he rose to a new type of life. So Paul here, he's just saying Christ is first. He's first. He's first because he's willing to go to death for us in our place first. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage, and I wish we had more time, but let me take you, you don't have to turn there, but let me take you now to a passage that I feel like gives, um, it's, it's sort of a different picture, but it's, it's, it's a more, it paints a sort of, a more colorful maybe or concrete portrait of, what, of the, true, the sort of high truths that we just talked about. It's Revelation 4, last book of the Bible, Revelation, chapters 4 and 5. I'm not going to read those chapters, don't worry. But maybe my two favorite chapters in the whole Bible. John has just opened up the book 
of Revelation, the letter to the, to the churches from the Isle of Patmos. And he's presented with this glorious Christ, this risen Christ, and he writes letters to these churches, these seven churches in Turkey. And after that, he says, I know the church is being persecuted. I know that it seems like the church is losing. I know that maybe it seems like Christ isn't reigning in power, but let me take you to the nerve center of the universe. Let me show you what's really going on. So the beginning of Revelation 4, after those church letters, he pulls the curtain back and he says, behold, behold, I saw this almighty God. I saw God almighty in the, on the throne seated in total control of all, of all things. And you can't even see God because there's lightning and thunder and dark cloud wrapped around him, which takes us back, that's Old Testament imagery, it takes us back to Exodus 19, where God gives the law to his people. And if you even touch the mountain or get too close, you're gonna die because God's presence is that holy and we're so full of sin. But God is ringed by these 24 elders in white. They're, they've been cleansed, They're, they've been made perfect. They have gold crowns. They've been crowned with the work of God on their behalf. They've been shown faithful, okay? Um, he has these terrifying, he has these seven torches burning around his throne of the, that, are the, that represent the seven spirits of God. So God and his spirit and all his fullness who goes out through all the universe and reigns and rules and spreads his presence. And you have these terrifying four-faced creatures, an ox, a lion, um, a man, and what's the, what's the fourth? Um, I can't remember. But these four-faced creatures with six wings, eyes, all throughout the wings, flying, saying, holy, 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 constantly. And so there's this unapproachable God is the picture in Revelation 4. He's holy, he has a rainbow surrounding his throne, he's a covenant God, but you can't approach him on your own terms. And in fact, guess what? You just can't approach him. He's holy, he's perfect, he is high and mighty, he's just and good, and we are fallen in our sin. And yet he has elders around him and he has these four creatures saying how holy and worthy and good he is. And there's lightning and there's thunder. And just imagine the throne at the center of all things of the universe making everything work. Remember, he upholds all things by the word of his power. And he's just ringed by these walls, impenetrable. Can't access him, but you can look and just throw your head down. And that's exactly what the 24 elders do. They, they fall and throw their crowns down and they fall to the ground and they worship. So this is the picture of how the universe is. And then we transition to the next chapter, Revelation 5. And what happens? He sees, John transitions, and he says, this is what's really happening. He sees a book in the hand of God. And this book has seven seals. It has, it's written on the front and the back, which means it's a book that is the history of all things. Past and present is written on it. It's God's will for all things to be accomplished, his good will, his pleasing will for his creation. But the problem is it's sealed with seven seals, which means it's sealed perfectly. You can, no, and, and the angel, this mighty voice says, is there anyone worthy that can open this, that can accomplish and set forth God's will for creation, that can make sense of all things, these, these plans that God has for his beautiful creation that's been corrupted by our sin and our rebellion. And, and, and it says, he looked in heaven, he looked on earth, and he looked beneath the earth. In other words, he looked everywhere and no one was found worthy to approach God, to cut through these concentric rings and to unleash his plan for creation. But, and so John, what does John do? Does anyone know? He starts to weep. He starts to weep, not cry, not a single tear, weep like a baby because it's a tragedy that creation won't be able to go forward 
and God's plan will not be accomplished because of our sin and rebellion. We who were given charge over all things, we've ruined it. But the best, the, one of the best scenes in any, in the whole of God's revelation, right here, what happens? After John weeps, this angel puts his hand on John's shoulder. And what does he say? Weep no more. For behold, which means check it out, look. There is one who is a lion. He's the lion of Judah. But guess what? He looks like a lamb standing who was slain. He was, what beauty in that past tense verb. He was slain. He looks like a lamb, a weak, sacrificial, innocent creature, a woolly quadruped that can't harm anything. Sacrificed, offered up. But guess what? Through that, he actually manifested his greatest strength by laying his life down. He took the curse of creation inside of himself. He paid for our sin. He nailed it to the cross. The cross holds all things together. Through the cross, Jesus, this lamb, this lion who looks like a lamb that was slain, he walks straight up to, through all the concentric rings, straight up to the Almighty, straight up to the Ancient of Days. And he grabs the book and he opens it. And from that point, it's like there's this atom bomb goes off of power and energy, of creative force from the throne of God to accomplish all of God's will. Boom, boom, boom. And concentric rings throughout creation and all of creation just starts falling flat on their faces. The four-faced creatures, they fall. The elders, they fall. All of creation falls and begins to sing the praise of the lamb, worthy, worthy, worthy are you. And he sits on the throne with God Almighty and he receives all the praise due him. And this, John is saying, persecuted church. This, John is saying, dude sitting at your keyboard who's bored to death thinking, how can God use me here in my 40 hours a week? You know, I got crabgrass. My kid's waking me up at 2 a.m., man. I mean, you know, I'm at home with the kids. I don't care what it is. I can't reach my neighbor, whatever. I'm out of a job. I can't have kids, whatever it is. And John is saying, lift your eyes. Do you want to know how all things hold together? Do you want to know the good news? Let me tell you. There is this lion who was as a lamb slain who brings us straight through all the concentric circles. We walk right behind him by faith and he cuts through all the walls that keep us from God and we go straight into the Holy of Holies. The curtain was torn when his flesh was torn on the cross and now we have access to God. And now, through Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain, the lion of Judah, all of God's purposes for all of creation can be accomplished. Not through popes, yeah, yeah, give God a hand, amen. Not through popes, not through indulgences, not through this guy or that pastor or anyone else, any personality, any other creature, any created thing, he is not a creature. He is the firstborn of creation. He is the firstborn from the dead of a new order. And we in him have the greatest of hope. The greatest of hope. Um, oh, boy. Let me briefly mention one more scene, okay? And then paint a little picture 
and I'll give you some application, and then we're out. Or we'll sing some more songs. Okay, we'll take communion. We'll sing some more songs. And um, at the end of his ministry, after his resurrection from the dead, see if I can get that out, in the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third Gospel, it's the final chapter in the Gospel of Luke. This is how the book ends, okay? It's, I love, I love, I love John 21. I love the end of John. I love Luke 24. I love the end of Luke. Um, he's walking, Jesus is walking incognito, sort of like Henry V, the, 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 day, the night before, on the eve of battle before St. Crispin's Day, when he's walking among his troops and nobody knows who he is and he's checking on them and, you know, he's just... Uh, and um, Jesus is walking incognito, having the resurrected Lord still cloaked, his glory and his power are cloaked. And he's walking with two of his disciples, and they're bummed out because they're like, this guy, Jesus is playing dumb. He's like, what happened, guys? Why are you guys so sad? And he's like, haven't you heard? All Jerusalem's been in an uproar. Like our leader, the, we thought he was the Messiah, and he was crucified. And some are saying he's even risen. And that's, of course, what Jesus had told them all along. But we just, we don't, we can't, you know. And so he... Uh, how articulate was that? And so he, uh, we don't, we can't. And, um, and so he, he takes them on this amazing seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus on the Emmaus Road. And he, tell, he unfolds all, the, without telling them who he is, unfolds all the scriptures for them and shows them how it had to happen that way. The Messiah had to be crucified at the hands of sinful men in order to kill death through his death, in order to pay for our sin as a vicarious atoning sacrifice, and then to rise from the dead. It's all written, guys. All the scripture points to me. And I wanna go farther and say, don't have time to unpack it here, but even, we can even say more than the whole scripture points to Jesus. We can say he's the reason for the scripture. It, he's the reason it was written. He's the reason that history happened. He's the reason the future will be the future. He holds all things together. Without, it, without him, none of that would have been possible. In Matthew, Matthew 2.15, Matthew says, why, this is, this is paraphrased, okay, but take it back, and if you, do the hermit, if you do the study and all the hermeneutics and everything, it, it works out, I promise. Go to Matthew 2.15, and what Matthew says there is something amazing. He says, the Red Sea was parted, and Israel was taken out of Egypt from slavery, from the iron furnace of slavery into the promised land. Why? Because of Jesus. Because Jesus was gonna come. All that happened. Because, so Jesus could come and fulfill it. Because out of Egypt have I taken my son, that Old Testament prophecy in Hosea? Matthew says that really wasn't about primarily Israel. It was about Jesus. It was about Jesus. He's the reason it all happens. Let me, let me give you three things, and then I'll, I'll quote Bob Newhart to you, lighten it up a little bit, and then I'll give you some application, okay? All right, Bob Newhart, y'all are like, who is that? He's an old comedian. He's the father and elf, okay? All right. Um, Adam. Um, Adam, the first man, God made him, not a baby, God made him a fully mature man and gave him all creation and says, be my co-regent, be my vice-regent, okay, rule over the earth, be fruitful and multiply like we just talked about in baptism. My plan for the blessing of the earth is family, image bearers who bear my image, fill the earth with my image, okay, and cultivate my good creation. Use it, bless it, bring life to it, fill it. Do things, build things, explore in everything that you do, worship. He put him in a garden and he said, make the whole earth a garden. And he gave him a word to obey. It's not arbitrary. We cannot, perfect life does not exist for us to just do what we want. Perfect life equals, we're dependent creatures. We have to have a word from God to obey because that means relationship. 
this word was not an arbitrary word, don't eat from that tree. It was a test, but it was also a way of saying, if you obey me, that is what you were made for. And Adam broke, he was given a word about a tree, and he broke that word. And we have all been suffering since. He and his wife were kicked east out of the garden, and the world became a waste a waste place. And if you read Genesis 4 and 5 and 6, it got so bad, God had to basically start over. It got so bad. Sin, does, t- sin takes no prisoners. Sin has to, it can't just be coddled and, 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 and uh, um, wiped away a little bit. It has to be excoriated, carved out, cut out, okay? And so it takes over. He failed. Adam failed. Abraham comes along. Israel comes along. And God's plan for the world is given again to Abraham and to Israel through Abraham, the man of faith. They're put in a garden land. The sin is made a wilderness of the world. They're put in a garden land, the promised land. They're given a command from Sinai. They're given some commands, words of God to obey. Here is your life, obey. And what do they do? They disobey. The whole rest of the Old Testament's about Israel's egregious disobedience time and time again, covenant breakers. They're kicked east out of the garden, just like Adam and Eve, east to Babylon, exiled as a people, God's son. Okay, the corporate Adam. Now here comes Malachi, finish, Matthew. How do all the gospels start? Here's this man, born of Abraham, son of David, son of Adam. He comes along and he is given, he is the son of God. Okay, he is the second Adam. He is the, the, the true Israel, the true son of God. The Israel that Israel could never be. And he comes along and he's told to obey God, okay? Uh, and, and, and he goes and he obeys God, not in the garden, but in a wilderness. He's tested and he actually, for the first time in history, obeys. But he lives a life of suffering instead of a life of blessing, okay? And he is put in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And he is called to obey about a tree. What does he do? Unlike Adam, unlike Israel, he obeys God in the matter of the tree. He sweats drops of blood, and even against his own understanding and his will and his desire, he submits himself to the Father gladly because he loves the Father. And instead of getting blessed and getting to stay in the garden, he is thrust out of the garden, out of the holy city, out of the city of God, and crucified on a tree so that we could be brought into the garden. In Christ, through his death, through his suffering, through his obedience, we are brought back to the garden. And because of him, everything we do matters. We are called again once more through Jesus by faith in him to make of the earth a place where God is, where his glory shines, to make of the earth a garden, to cultivate, to love, to bless in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me finish with a few little bits. In her beautiful little book, A Theology of the Ordinary, Julie Canlis reflects on the job that God gave Adam and Eden to tend the garden, to work and to keep it, Genesis 2.15. You know the same charge, she says, is given only elsewhere in the Old Testament to the priests in the tabernacle and temple to work and to keep the temple and the tabernacle? And what does that mean? Canlis unpacks it. She says this, for the Hebrew mind, so for those who wrote the Old Testament, Israelites, for the Hebrew mind, there's no dualism. There's no division between secular and sacred. Human life and human flourishing are a form of worship as they happen in God's temple, okay? All of life is spiritual, work, bearing children, hobbies, friendship, repairing gutters, commuting. Commuting. Praise God. This is our worship. 
the offering of our everyday stuff to God. As Romans 12:1 says, take your everyday, ordinary life and place it before God as an offering. Um, in our work, in our play, in our in-between spaces where so much of our life is spent, all that we do is an offering to God designed as worship. And in Christ alone, this is possible. Christ, as I say, has brought us back into the garden that all we do might be priestly, that all we do might be, everything we do might be offered to God in faith and become pleasing to God because of the work of Christ, because of his life for us, his death for us, his resurrection for us, okay? And we as priests are given the beautiful charge of telling people about the way to know God and to be reconciled to God once again, okay? Um, his name is Jesus. It happens in Christ alone. He's done the work. Come to him. I told you I finished with a Bob Newhart sketch. There's this funny clip. You can look it up. It's like three minutes on YouTube. And it's Bob Newhart, the comedian. He plays a, he plays a psychologist. And a lady comes in really distraught. I see some of you smiling because you know, you've seen it. It's funny. I see he's really distraught. She's really distraught, as you'd expect. And she comes in, and she just tells this story. He's like, sit down. And she tells a story about how messed up, like she has this recurring dream and this fear of being buried alive and ah, all, and she just eats her up. And he says, okay, well, he has all these rules and the rules essentially like it's $5 for your visit and it won't be, it won't be more than five minutes. I assure you, you'll, you'll probably be fixed in five minutes. And if it's three minutes, I'll just give you $2 back. Oh no, he says, I won't. I'm just keeping the fiber. <laughs> and so she's like, okay, fine. So she gives him the $5 and he's like, okay, you ready? He's like, I'm ready. She has her notepad out and he goes, Stop it. And she's like, what? He goes, stop it. And he just keeps saying that. And like the more he says it, the more like offended she is, obviously. And that's all he says, just two words, stop it. And he, he expands a little bit. Um, but he's just like, knock it off, you know? And I just, wanna, I just wanna say, okay, if you are looking to the esteem of others to give you a sense of self-worth, stop it. If, if you are looking for meaning, Anywhere else in life, in, in someone or something or a shiny object, stop it. If, if you're looking uh, for that sort of satisfying uh, sort of arrival in life through, through more money in your bank account, through a nice house, through a steady job, through reaching that next bit of your job, that promotion, um, if you're looking for a life free of stress, a spouse who loves you, children who obey you, children at all, Food, shiny stuff, like I said, toys, good grades, a good reputation, a chance to start over, a vacation. Oh, I want a vacation. That'll do it for me, right? Some, some of us have just gotten there. A car, a truck, a boat, a resume, a degree. If you're looking to any of these things for satisfaction, for security, for salvation, here it is, guys. To tell you that you are of infinite worth and though deeply flawed, and we all know this, we all know we're of infinite worth and we all know that we are deeply, deeply deeply flawed, such that if anyone knew what we really are, nobody could really love us. If you know these things, but that you know that you are still, you want to know that you're still more deeply loved, known, fully known, and fully loved, stop it. Your search needs to end right now in the person of Jesus Christ. He has done all things necessary for your salvation, for your life, for your satisfaction. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Believer, non-believer, all things hold together in him. Stop whatever you're going after to fill and know that in Christ alone, the joy of our desiring 
We are made for him. We find life in him. He died for us, and behold, he is risen. You can't keep the living one in the ground for that long. He's alive. He's reigning, and he will return. And through everything that's going on in your life, he has taken you back to the garden that all might be worshipped. Wiping baby butts, working in the yard, working at work. I don't care what you're doing. Preaching, washing dishes, let it be in Christ alone. Worship, offer it up to him. He has brought us to this place where we can do that. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your people. I thank you for making a people for yourself. I thank you for this people. I thank you for making us family. I thank you that in Christ alone, we have significance, eternal significance. We are utterly loved and utterly known, and our problem is utterly solved and taken care of. Help us to flee to you, Jesus. We love you. We bless you. Get glory in all of our lives in the nooks and crannies and crevices. Make us a worshipful people. Make us a transparent people who understand that sin can't keep us from you. You've taken care of that problem so we can be real about our problems and our struggles. And just let that be an act of worship. Grow your church. Bless your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.